Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. To get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today, log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa today for details. This is a Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show number 97. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. Yes, another another week back in the saddle from our happy holidays there. Hope everyone is doing fine and hope you enjoyed last week's show. A tremendous show, I must admit. Please, before I get into anything there, do consider, you know, if you've got a Google Android phone or you're using the Android application, please pop over and check out the Android, the application for the sofa stream. Simon's keen to get all the kind of reviews in so you can sort it out and tweak it and make sure it's, so he's going to put it into like a, I think it's some Google competition so please do that for me and do that for starship sofa so what is on oral's lights 97 well if you've noticed it is the end of the month so that is art as well we have some fantastic art there by ali please do check out that it is to go with the main story by nancy cress we have poorly by geo clark we have our good friend rob barnett talking with the film talk then like i said we have a fantastic story by Nancy Crest to round things up. Hope you do stick around and enjoy the show. First off then, with a little bit of poetry by G.O. Clark, and it's narrated by our good friend Ray Sizemore. Links to both Ray and Gary's site will be on in front of the website. Halfway Home by G.O. Clark the madwoman spends her days debating with scarecrows, harping free verse to the marble cemetery angels and sitting on park benches, surrounded by attentive ghosts. At night, she laughs at TV sitcoms only she can see and hear, shares snacks of milk and cookies with the milk carton children, and gets tucked in by the gentle hands of a giant attuned to her delusions. There you go, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Next up, our good friend, Rob Barnett. Rob, summer film is still going strong, sir. Tell us all about it. Hello, everybody. It's me, Rod, here once again to run down a few more films from summer 2009. Now, last I left you, summer was not shaping up to be all that wonderful. It was shaping up to be quite disappointing, really. But I will say this. As promised last time, things did improve this summer. Things have gotten better. And there's been some there's been some downside too. Let's be blunt. Let me start with a bit of downside. I'm gonna cover four films here 
try to kind of go in the order that I saw them in. Okay, first up, Transformers 2, Electric Boogaloo, or The Quickening, or Rise of the Fallen, or whatever the heck they're calling this thing. Now, I have to admit, I'm not the person that, that should really be reviewing this for someone who wants to hear a positive review of this film. I never finished the first one. I was never a big fan of the cartoon series when I was a kid. I never saw the cartoon series as a kid. So I don't really have a whole lot of investment in the characters or investment in the story or investment in any of this thing. Never cared. But I was never able to finish the first film because I have a hard time dealing with Michael Bay's version of how movie making is done. All constant camera movement, flashy explosions, and no substance at all. I mean, if there's any chance to actually have something mean something in his films without it being stupid, man, the guy can't find it with both hands and a slide rule on the map. I mean, it's just impossible. I've always found his films awful to the point of pain. And this one, this one may be the worst yet. As a matter of fact, it is the worst yet. This may be, this may end up being the highest grossing film of the summer. And it is the worst thing. I thought I'd seen bad this summer. No, I had seen bad. This was pretty awful. It is two and a half hours long. And much like the first film, everybody is still coated in a sheen of oil. I guess so that they look really shiny? I, I don't really know. The camera never stops moving to the point where I almost felt like I should be developing some form of motion sickness. Illogic rules today. Nothing in the film makes sense. I mean, by the time we get to the old Transformer who's using a cane to move around, I, I wanted, well, I wanted a beer, really. I wanted something for some relief. This was bad. I mean, for Michael Bay, as long as it got hot chicks and cool cars and things blow up a whole lot, roughly 75 million things blow up, then, you know, it's considered a good movie, everybody's happy, and everybody goes home with a grin on their face. I can't stand this film. But in all honesty, I'm not the audience for this film. This film was made for people who want to experience something that they don't have to think about or that would actually harm you mentally if you thought about it. It's for teenagers. It's for kids. It's for people who want to see things go boom and don't really give too much of a crap one way or the other, whether it makes any sense or it's anything more than just dumb. So, there you go. To relate to you how little I think of this film, I will, I will give you the example, the perfect example of what this film is like so that you never have to see it. You can just imagine it. This has nothing to do with giant transforming robots. My anecdote has absolutely nothing to do with that. It has absolutely... Everything to do with how the story is constructed and how Michael Bay sees the world and sees you as an audience to be entertained. <clears throat> I'll relate. Imagine you are on a school campus, a college campus in the United States of America in modern day, 2009. Imagine that there is actually a student somewhere on this campus who is openly selling marijuana brownies, pot brownies, openly to students. Imagine this student sells one of these pot brownies to a visiting parent of college students. And imagine that the marijuana brownie is in a baggie, clearly marked with a little symbol of a pot leaf, marijuana brownie, 
and here's a little here's a little symbol for those that are too stupid to be able to read the words. Imagine that this person sells the brownie to the parent. Then imagine that the parent doesn't know what a marijuana brownie is. After having the marijuana brownie explained to her, imagine that the parent then eats the marijuana brownie quickly and within a few minutes is supposedly stoned out of her brain and stumbling around the campus like a drunken fool. This series of events you are expected to believe and you are supposed to think are riotously funny. This exact thing transposed to other situations is Transformers 2 Revenge of the Fallen. If you think that is funny, if you think that that is something that you can watch on a screen and believe, maybe this movie's for you. If you can't, then you're like me, and you don't want to get within a standard mile of this thing. Moving briefly out of the realm of science fiction for just a moment, let me take, take a little detour here off into the land of horror. Film came out this summer that a lot of people have been looking forward to from Sam Raimi, who for the past several years has been making the Spider-Man movies. He went back to his roots and decided to make a horror film. He and his brother co-wrote it. They started it years ago, and it was called Drag Me to Hell. The movie bombed miserably. And I think there's an obvious reason for this. The brothers Raimi went back and decided they wanted to make a film for the fans of their early horror films, Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, and Army of Darkness. Those films slam horror and gore and humor right next to one another. There are almost no moments when these two, these over-the-top elements of horror and humor don't interconnect and merge at times to make it sometimes uncomfortable for the audience who is at one point being pushed into a kind of ew, whoa, moment, and the next being invited to laugh at something uproariously strange and funny. The film will please fans of those earlier horror films, but I don't think it's going to go over very well with a crowd of people that don't know what it is. The good news is, while the film is incredibly over the top in both its humor and its gore, it's very well acted, exceptionally well directed, with a great sound design and some wonderful music. It takes itself seriously as far as the horror is concerned, even when things are out of control and insane. I can hardly believe the film got a PG-13 rating here in the States. To be honest, this thing probably deserved an R. That's what it, what it should have been. It's nasty and it's mean-spirited, but it's in a fun way, if you understand what I mean. Drag Me to Hell is this summer's carnival ride. Not a happy Disney ride. It's a, an adult horror ride. And it's a fun one. But uh, it's definitely not going to be for everyone. Next, we move into the film that made this summer the beautiful thing that it could be. I'm talking, of course, about the wonderful film from Pixar, Up. UP, two little letters, so much joy. Easily the best film of the summer. I laughed, I cried, it became a part of me. It is touching, funny, smart, and just emotionally well done with wonderful characters. It's so good. I've gotten to the point where I expect high quality from Pixar Studios. They spend years developing the stories, 
getting everything properly put together and making the film. So there's a lot of things that get beaten out of the process of storytelling when you have that long a period of time to craft your film. And the things that get beaten out are wasted moments, stupid things, missed opportunities. There are no missed opportunities in these films, especially not up. This is an exceptional film. The story is, of course, incredibly silly. An elderly man decides he wants to go to South America like he always wanted to when he was a kid, ties hundreds of thousands of helium balloons to the base of his house, uproots the thing, and flies off to have the adventure of a lifetime with an unfortunate castaway on his porch. This is a wonderful film. I, I beg you, go see this film. I've seen it twice. It's lovely, and it is wonderful. What's great about it is that even though I knew a lot about it before I went to see it, I did not expect certain things in it, like I didn't expect the, the author Conan Doyle shout-out. Uh, if you've never read or seen a film version of The Lost World, Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, science fiction paleontology story, uh, first filmed in 1925, and I highly recommend that movie, Christopher Plummer's character is a direct take on the slightly mad Professor Challenger character from Conan Doyle's novel, and uh, plays it wonderfully. It's, 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 it's almost as if it were some kind of mad sequel in a way to that novel. And if you've never read it, once again, let me recommend that you do. The story is, of course, preposterous, but it works so well. And the reason for that is that the emotional truth of the characters sells everything. It is a very satisfying film, and it has easily the most satisfying ending of the summer. Any movie that is so good that adults and children alike can enjoy it. That's something worth recommending. This movie had me crying the first ten minutes. It's such a touching thing. It's so well done. It is so well played. I, once again, just go see Up. You'll love it. It does some very hard things. There's a very difficult relationship for this type of film. It, it doesn't just rely on simple things. It's not the easier idea of romantic love that so many films get built around. It's about a building of trust and respect and warm affection between people and dogs who are brought together and become good, true friends. And remember, Squirrel. Last up is another science fiction film that is a little harder to see. It's not a big-budget film. It's not something that's getting a whole lot of attention. And if it is getting a lot of attention, it's mainly because its director and writer, Duncan Jones, is the son of David Bowie. But it deserves any attention it gets, so I'm not going to slide it for any speaking of it in the media. This is a great little movie called Moon. It was made for a $5 million budget, which is astonishing on its face. When you see the film, it looks spectacular. This does not look like a low-budget film. It is a smart, well-crafted, character-driven story. This is not your basic science fiction film with a whole lot of explosions and a lot of stupid things happening. This is a character piece. It's about a single man on a three-year tour monitoring the Helium-3 mining station on the moon. Basically, it's a blue-collar science fiction tale, kind of in the vein of uh, Alien, where you have these characters who are just workaday folks doing their job and trying to get by. And in this case, it's this poor guy who's up there all on his own, and his only real companion is a computer named Gertie. Now, Gertie is a very helpful computer, 
Gertie is a lot better than what you might suspect from science fiction movies of the past. This is no how with murderous intent. This is a useful creature. A good friend, actually. This film harkens back to many older science fiction films. Not just uh, the idea of blue-collar science fiction from Alien, but also silent running. There's a little bit of 2001 in there, and how could it not be, considering the type of story that it's telling? And there's even a touch of Blade Runner thrown in there, as well as a few others that I won't talk about, because, to be honest, it would ruin the central thing of the movie, which is, nicely, a mystery. And it's a good mystery. It's thoughtful, provocative, and guaranteed to start conversations after the end credits roll. This is a movie that has some ideas floating around in its head, and it's wanting to make you think about them. But it's also very entertaining. The central performance, indeed just about the only performance in the film, is given by Sam Rockwell, an excellent actor who is showing more and more as the years go by that he is a go-to guy for fine character work. And here, he gets a lot of time to not just play to the camera, but to play against himself. And he does a masterful job. This is a fine performance in a very good film, and it is a film you should seek out. It's one I think you'll enjoy, and it's, uh, it, get, it gets my highest recommendation. This is a good film. This is what I hope they make more of. So, right now, out there in the big, wide, wonderful world, we got a lot of different options. It's the summertime. More movies coming down the pike every seven days. Get out there. Find something interesting. Hey, go see Up. Go see Moon. Go see even Drag Me to Hell if you're that kind of person. But man, trust me, don't go see Transformers. Huh. It'll give you a headache. This is Rod signing off, and I will talk to you again next time. Rob, thank you so much. So today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Audible has over 35,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded and played back anywhere just like Starship Sofa. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Again, go to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa to get your free audiobook. And speaking of free audiobooks, this could be yours. And I'm still going to bang on about Lamentation, Ken Scholes. I'm ne- nearly at the end there now. And I just think this des- this book deserves like a little second bashing, you know, on Audible. If you want to go there, get your free book, you know, try out Lamentation, Ken Scholes. Give you a little blurb on what people have been saying about it. This is the golden age of fantasy with a dozen masters doing their best work. Then along comes Ken Scholes with all his amazing clarity, power, invention and shows us all how it's done. Orson Scott Card. Harry Turtledove says, Ken Scholes is a hot new voice to watch for on the interesting frontier between science fiction and fantasy. He has a keen eye for action and a keen ear for sounds of the human heart. Grab on now because he's going places. Kevin G. Anderson says, Ken Scholes' Lamentation is an iconic SF story cloaked in fantasy, drawn raw material from the classics such as A Canticle from Leibowitz and Earth Abides, but forging something new with colourful characters, compelling scenes and unfolding miracles. There you go. Like I say, it is. It's, it's got me hooked and it's, and as soon as like Kevin G. Anderson there as well saying Canticle for Leibowitz, that's what, you know, right up there at the top of the tree for me with kind of science fiction stories. 
And this is coming in. Do you know what I mean? This is is up there as well. I've got the blurb here. I just want to give you like a, a kind of background, you know, what the kind of book's all about. Instead of me waffling about how good the characters are and stuff like that. An ancient weapon has completely destroyed the city of Windway. For many miles away, Rodolfo, lord of the nine forest houses, sees a horrifying column of smoke rising. He knows that war is coming to the named lands. Nearer to the devastation, a young apprentice is the only survivor of the city. He sat waiting for his father outside the walls and was transformed as he watched everyone he knew die in an instant. Soon all the kingdoms of the named lands will be at each other's throats as alliances are challenged and hidden plots are uncovered. This remarkable first novel from an award-winning short fiction writer will take readers away to a new world, an earth so far in distant future that our time is not even a memory, a world where magic is commonplace and the great areas of the planet are impassable wastes. But human nature hasn't changed through the ages. War and faith and love still move princes and nations. You can get it over at Audible as well. And like I say, this one is a fine narration as well. So, Lamentation, Ken Scholes, second week running, it is my pick for Audible. Next week, come on to the main fiction, and it's by none other than Nancy Cress. Nancy Cress is the author of 26 books, 16 science fiction novels, 3 fantasy novels, 4 short story collections, and 3 books on writing. She writes often about genetic engineering in her most widely known novel, Beggars in Spain. Nancy's most recent book, Steel Across the Sky, which was Tor 2009, a science fiction novel about crime committed by aliens against humanity 10,000 years ago, for which they now like to atone. Published last year were Nano Comes to Clifford Falls and Other Stories, a collection from Golden Griffin, and Dogs, a terrifying bio-thriller from Tachyon Press. Nancy's fiction has won four Nebula Awards for All About the Bright Stars, The Flowers of Orlood Prison, Beggars in Spain and The Fountain of Age. Beggars in Spain also won the Hugo. In addition, Flowers of Orlood Prison, which is the one you're going to hear there now, garnered a Sturgeon Award and the novel The Probability Space won the 2003 John W. Campbell Memorial Award. Nancy's fiction has been translated into two dozen languages, including Klingon. Like I said, She's got some history behind her, Nancy Cress, you know, and some like amazing awards. And this story is, like I say, fantastic. It is narrated by our good friend, you know, and workhorse for the Starship Sova, Amy H. Sturgis. Amy, thank you so much. What a fantastic narration this is. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present. The Flowers of Owlet Prison by Nancy Cress, narrated by Amy H. Sturgis. My sister lies sweetly on the bed across the room from mine. She lies on her back, fingers lightly curled, her legs stretched straight as a lindell tree's. Her pert little nose, much prettier than my own, pokes delicately into the air. Her skin glows like a fresh flower, but not with health. She is, of course, dead. I slip out of my bed and stand swaying a moment with morning dizziness. A Terran healer once told me my blood pressure was too low, which is the sort of nonsensical thing Terrans will sometimes say, like announcing the air is too moist. The air is what it is, and so am I. What I am is a murderer. I kneel in front of my sister's glass coffin. My mouth has that awful morning taste, even though last night I drank nothing stronger than water. Almost I yawn, 
but at the last moment I turn it into a narrow-lipped ringing in my ears that somehow leaves my mouth tasting worse than ever. But at least I haven't disrespected Anno. She was my only sibling and closest friend until I replaced her with illusion. Two more years, Anno, I say, less forty-two days. Then you will be free, and so will I. Anno, of course, says nothing. There is no need. She knows as well as I the time until her burial, when she can be released from the chemicals and glass that bind her dead body and can rejoin our ancestors. Others I have known, whose relatives were under atonement bondage, said the bodies complained and recriminated, especially in dreams, making the house a misery. Anno is more considerate. Her corpse never troubles me at all. I do that to myself. I finish the morning prayers, leap up, and stagger dizzily to the piss closet. I may not have drunk pell last night, but my bladder is nonetheless bursting. At noon, a messenger rides into my yard on a Terran bicycle. The bicycle is an attractive design, sloping with interesting curves, adapted for our market undoubtedly. The messenger is less attractive, a surly boy probably in his first year of government service. When I smile at him, he looks away. He would rather be someplace else. Well, if he doesn't perform his messenger duties with more courteous cheer, he will be. Letter for Uli Pekbengaren. I am Uli Pekbengaren. Scowling, he hands me the letter and pedals away. I don't take the scowl personally. The boy does not, of course, know what I am any more than my neighbors do. That would defeat the whole point. I am supposed to pass as fully real until I can earn the right to resume being so. The letter is shaped into a utilitarian circle, very businesslike, with a generic government seal. It could have come from the tax section, or community relief, or processions and rituals, but of course it hasn't. None of those sections would write to me until I am real again. The sealed letter is from Reality and Atonement. It's a summons. They have a job for me. And about time. I have been home nearly six weeks since the last job, shaping my flower beds and polishing dishes and trying to paint a skyscape of last month's synchrony when all six moons were visible at once. I paint badly. It is time for another job. I pack my shoulder sack, kiss the glass of my sister's coffin, and lock the house. Then I wheel my bicycle, not alas as interestingly curved as the messenger's, out of its shed and pedal down the dusty road toward the city. Frablick Peckbermidden is nervous. This interests me. Peckbermidden is usually a calm, controlled man, the sort who never replaces reality with illusion. He's given me my previous jobs with no fuss. But now he actually can't sit still. He fidgets back and forth across his small office, which is cluttered with papers, stone sculptures in an exaggerated style I don't like at all, and plates of half-eaten food. I don't comment on either the food or the pacing. I am fond of Peckbermidden, quite apart from my gratitude to him, which is profound. He was the official in RNA who voted to give me a chance to become real again. The other two judges voted for perpetual death, no chance of atonement. I'm not supposed to know this much detail about my own case, but I do. Peckpermidden is middle-aged, a stocky man whose neck fur has just begun to yellow. His eyes are gray and kind. 
Peck Bengaren, he says, finally, and then stops. I stand ready to serve, I say, softly, so as not to make him even more nervous. But something is growing heavy in my stomach. This does not look good. Peck Bengaren, another pause. You are an informer. I stand ready to serve our shared reality, I repeat, despite my astonishment. Of course I'm an informer. I've been an informer for two years and eighty-two days. I killed my sister, and I will be an informer until my atonement is over. I can be fully real again, and Anno can be released from death to join our ancestors. Peck Bermidden knows this. He's assigned me every one of my previous informing jobs, from the first easy one in currency counterfeiting right through the last one in baby stealing. I'm a very good informer, as Peck Bermidden also knows. What's wrong with this man? Suddenly, Peck Bermidden straightens, but he doesn't look me in the eye. You are an informer, and the section for reality and atonement has an informing job for you, in Owlet Prison. So that's it. I go still. Owlet Prison holds criminals, not just those who have tried to get away with stealing or cheating or child snatching, which are, after all, normal. Owlet Prison holds those who are unreal. Who have succumbed to the illusion that they are not part of shared common reality, and so may do violence to the most concrete reality of others: their physical bodies, maimers, rapists, murderers, like me. I feel my left hand tremble, and I strive to control it and to not show how hurt I am. I thought Peck Bermidden thought better of me. There is, of course, no such thing as partial atonement. One is either real or one is not, but a part of my mind nonetheless thought that Peck Bermidden had recognized two years and eighty-two days of effort in regaining my reality. I have worked so hard. He must see some of this on my face because he says quickly, "I am sorry to assign this job to you, Peck. I wish I had a better one, but you've been requested specifically by Rafket Sarlow. Requested by the Capital." My spirits lift slightly. They've added a note to the request. I am authorized to tell you the informant job carries additional compensation. If you succeed, your debt will be considered immediately paid, and you can be restored at once to reality. Restored at once to reality. I would again be a full member of world without shame, entitled to live in the real world of shared humanity, and to hold my head up with pride. And Anno could be buried, the artificial chemicals washed from her body, so that it could return to world, and her sweet spirit could join our ancestors. Anno too would be restored to reality. I'll do it, I tell Peck Bermidden, and then formally, I stand ready to serve our shared reality. One more thing before you agree, Peck Bengaren. Peck Bermidden is fidgeting again. The suspect is a Terran. I have never before informed on a Terran. Alit Prison, of course, holds those aliens who have been judged unreal. Terrans, fallers, the weird little hahuhubs. The problem is that even after thirty years of ships coming to world, there is still considerable debate about whether any aliens are real at all. Clearly, their bodies exist. After all, here they are. But their thinking is so disordered. 
they might almost qualify as all being unable to recognize shared social reality, and so just as unreal as those poor, empty children who never attain reason and must be destroyed. Usually, we on world just leave the aliens alone, except, of course, for trading with them. The Terrans, in particular, offer interesting objects such as bicycles and ask in return worthless items, mostly perfectly obvious information. But do any of the aliens have souls capable of recognizing and honoring a shared reality with the souls of others? At the universities, the argument goes on. Also, in market squares and pill shops, which is where I hear it. Personally, I think aliens may well be real. I try not to be a bigot. I say to Peck Bermidden, "I am willing to inform on a Terran." He wiggles his hand in pleasure. Good, good. You will enter Owlet Prison a cap month before the suspect is brought there. You will use your primary cover, please. I nod. Although Peck Bermidden knows this is not easy for me, my primary cover is the truth. I killed my sister Anno Peck Bengaren two years and eighty-two days ago, and was judged unreal enough for perpetual death, never able to join my ancestors. The only untrue part of the cover is that I escaped and have been hiding from the section police ever since. You have just been captured, Peck Bermidden continues. And assigned to the first part of your death in Owlet, the section records will show this. Again, I nod, not looking at him. The first part of my death in Owlet, the second, when the time came, in the kind of chemical bondage that holds Anno, and never, ever to be freed, ever. What if it were true? I should go mad. Many do. The suspect is named Carol Walters. He is a Terran healer. He murdered a world child in an experiment to discover how real people's brains function. His sentence is perpetual death, but the section believes that Carol Walters was working with a group of world people in these experiments. That somewhere on world there is a group that so lost its hold on reality that it would murder children to investigate science. For a moment, the room wavers. Including the exaggerated swooping curves of Peck Bermidden's ugly sculptures, but then I get hold of myself. I am an informer and a good one. I can do this. I am redeeming myself and releasing Anno. I am an informer. I'll find out who this group is. I say and what they're doing and where they are. Peck Bermidden smiles at me. Good. His trust is a dose of shared reality. Two people acknowledging their common perceptions together without lies or violence. I need this dose. It is probably the last one I will have for a long time. How do people manage in perpetual death, fed on only solitary illusion? Owlet Prison must be full of the mad. Traveling to Owlet takes two days of hard riding. Somewhere, my bicycle loses a bolt, and I wheel it to the next village. The woman who runs the bicycle shop is competent but mean—the sort who gazes at shared reality mostly to pick out the ugly parts. At least it's not a Terran bicycle. At least, I say, but she is incapable of recognizing sarcasm. Sneaky, soulless criminals taking us over bit by bit. We should never have allowed them in. 
And the government is supposed to protect us from unreal slime. Ha! What a joke. Your bolt is a non-standard size. Is it? I say. Yes. Costs you extra. I nod. Behind the open rear door of the shop, two little girls play in a thick stand of moonweed. We should kill all the aliens, the repairer says. No shame in destroying them before they corrupt us. Erm, I say. Informers are not supposed to make themselves conspicuous with political debate. Above the two children's heads, the moonweed bends gracefully in the wind. One of the little girls has long brown neck fur, very pretty. The other does not. There, that bolt will hold fine. Where are you from? Rafket Sarlow. Informers never name their villages. She gives an exaggerated shudder. I would never visit the capital. Too many aliens. They destroy our participation in shared reality without a moment's thought. Three and eight, please. I want to say, no one but you can destroy your own participation in shared reality. But I don't. Silently, I pay her the money. She glares at me, at the world. You don't believe me about the Terrans, but I know what I know. I ride away through the flowered countryside. In the sky, only Cap is visible, rising on the horizon opposite the sun. Cap glows with a clear white smoothness, like Anno's skin. The Terrans, I am told, have only one moon. Shared reality on their world is perhaps skimpier than ours, less curved, less rich, less warm. Are they ever jealous? Owlet Prison sits on a flat plain inland from the south coast. I know that other islands on world have their own prisons, just as they have their own governments, but only Owlet is used for the alien unreal, as well as our own. A special agreement among the governments of world makes this possible. The alien governments protest, but of course it does them no good. The unreal is the unreal, and far too painful and dangerous to have running around loose. Besides, the alien governments are far away on other stars. Owlet is huge and ugly, a straight-lined monolith of dull red stone with no curves anywhere. An official from R&A meets me and turns me over to two prison guards. We enter through a barred gate, my bicycle chained to the guards and I to my bicycle. I am led across a wide, dusty yard toward a stone wall. The guards, of course, don't speak to me. I am unreal. My cell is square, twice my length on a side. There is a bed, a piss pot, a table, and a single chair. The door is without a window, and all the other doors in the row of cells are closed. When will the prisoners be allowed to be all together? I ask. But of course the guard doesn't answer me. I am not real. I sit in my chair and wait. Without a clock, it's difficult to judge time, but I think a few hours pass totally without event. Then a gong sounds, and my door slides up into the ceiling. Ropes and pulleys controlled from above, inaccessible from inside the cell. The corridor fills with illusionary people, men and women, some with yellowed neck fur and sunken eyes, walking with the shuffle of old age. Some young, striding along with that dangerous mixture of anger and desperation. And the aliens. I have seen aliens before, but not so many together. 
fallers, about our size, but very dark, as if burned crisp by their distant star. They wear their neck fur very long and dye it strange bright colors, although not in prison. Terrans, who don't even have neck fur, but instead fur on their heads, which they sometimes cut into fanciful curves, rather pretty. Terrans are a little intimidating because of their size. They move slowly. Anno, who had one year at the university before I killed her, once told me that the Terrans' world makes them feel lighter than ours does. I don't understand this, but Anno was very intelligent, and so it's probably true. She also explained that fallers, Terrans, and world people are somehow related far back in time, but this is harder to believe. Perhaps Anno was mistaken. Nobody ever thinks Hahuhubs could be related to us. Tiny, scuttling, ugly, dangerous. They walk on all fours. They're covered with warts. They smell bad. I was glad to see only a few of them sticking close together in the corridor at Owlet. We all moved toward a large room filled with rough tables and chairs, and in the corner a trough for the Hahuhubs. The food is already on the tables. Cereal, flatbread, alindel fruit, very basic but nutritious. What surprises me most is the total absence of guards. Apparently, prisoners are allowed to do whatever they wish to the food, the room, or each other without interference. Well, why not? We aren't real. I need protection quickly. I choose a group of two women and three men. They sit at a table with their backs to the wall, and others have left a respectful distance around them. From the way they group themselves, the oldest woman is the leader. I plant myself in front of her and look directly into her face. A long scar ridges her left cheek to disappear into grizzled neck fur. I am Uli Pekbengaren. I say, my voice even but too low to be heard beyond this group. In outlet for the murder of my sister, I can be useful to you. She doesn't speak, and her flat, dark eyes don't waver. But I have her attention. Other prisoners watch furtively. I know an informer among the guards. He knows I know. He brings things into Alit for me in return for not sharing his name. Still, her eyes don't waver. But I see she believes me. The sheer outrage of my statement has convinced her. A guard who had already forfeited reality by informing, by violating shared reality, might easily turn it to less pernicious material advantage. Once reality is torn, the rents grow. For the same reason, she easily believes that I might violate my supposed agreement with the guard. What sort of things? She says carelessly. Her voice is raspy and thick, like some hairy root. Letters, candy. Pell, intoxicants are forbidden in the prison. They promote shared conviviality, to which the unreal have no right. Weapons, perhaps I say. And why shouldn't I beat this guard's name out of you and set up my own arrangement with him? He will not. He is my cousin. This is the trickiest part of the cover provided to me by R and A section. It requires that my would-be protector believe in a person who has kept enough sense of reality to honor family ties, but will nonetheless violate a larger shared reality. 
I told Peck Bermidden that I doubted such a twisted state of mind would be very stable, and so a seasoned prisoner would not believe in it. But Peck Bermidden was right, and I was wrong. The woman nods. All right, sit down. She does not ask what I wish in return for the favors of my supposed cousin. She knows. I sit beside her, and from now on I am physically safe in Owlet Prison from all but her. Next, I must somehow befriend a Terran. This proves harder than I expect. The Terrans keep to themselves, and so do we. They are just as violent toward their own as all the mad, doomed souls in Owlet. The place is every horror whispered by children trying to shock each other. Within a tin day, I see two world men hold down and rape a woman. No one interferes. I see a Terran gang beat a faller. I see a world woman knife another woman who bleeds to death on the stone floor. This is the only time guards appear, heavily armored. A priest is with them. He wheels in a coffin of chemicals and immediately immerses the body so that it cannot decay to release the prisoner from her sentence of perpetual death. At night, isolated in my cell, I dream that Frablet Pepermidden appears and rescinds my provisional reality. The knifed, doomed corpse becomes Anno. Her attacker becomes me. I wake from the dream moaning and weeping. The tears are not grief, but terror. My life and Anno's hang from the splintery branch of a criminal alien I have not yet even met. I know who he is, though. I skulk as close as I dare to the Terran groups, listening. I don't speak their language, of course, but Peck Bermidden taught me to recognize the cadences of Carol Walters in several of their dialects. Carol Walters is an old Terran with gray head fur cut in boring straight lines, wrinkled brownish skin, and sunken eyes. But his tin fingers, how do they keep the extra ones from tangling them up? are long and quick. It takes me only a day to realize that Carol Walters' own people leave him alone, surrounding him with the same nonviolent respect that my protector gets. It takes me much longer to figure out why. Carol Walters is not dangerous, neither a protector nor a punisher. I don't think he has any private shared realities with the guards. I don't understand until the world woman is knifed. It happens in the courtyard, on a cool day in which I am gazing hungrily at the one patch of bright sky overhead. The knifed woman screams. The murderer pulls the knife from her belly and blood shoots out. In seconds, the ground is drenched. The woman doubles over. Everyone looks the other way, except me. And Carol Walters runs over with his old man stagger and kneels over the body, trying uselessly to save the life of a woman already dead anyway. Of course, he is a healer. The Terrans don't bother him because they know that, next time, it might be they who have need of him. I feel stupid for not realizing this right away. I'm supposed to be good at informing. Now I'll have to make it up by immediate action. The problem, of course, is that no one will attack me while I'm under Afa Pekfakar's protection, and provoking Pekfakar herself is far too dangerous." I can see only one way to do this. I wait a few days. 
Outside in the courtyard, I sit quietly against the prison wall and breathe shallowly. After a few minutes, I leap up. The dizziness takes me. I worsen it by holding my breath. Then I ram as hard as I can into the rough stone wall and slide down it. Pain tears through my arm and forehead. One of Pekfakar's men shouts something. Pekfakar is there in a minute. I hear her, hear all of them, through a curtain of dizziness and pain. Just ran into the wall. I saw it. Told me she gets these dizzy attacks. Head broken in. I gasp through sudden real nausea. The healer, the Terran. The Terran. Pekfakar's voice hard with sudden suspicion. But I gasp out more words. Disease. A Terran told me, since childhood, without help, I. My vomit, unplanned but useful, spews over her boots. Get the Terran. Pekfakar rasps to somebody, and a towel. Then Carol Walters bends over me. I clutch his arm, try to smile, and pass out. When I come to, I am lying inside on the floor of the eating hall. The Terran cross-legged beside me. A few world people hover near the far wall, scowling. Carol Walter says, "How many fingers you see? Four. Aren't you supposed to have five? He unbends the fifth from behind his palm and says, "You fine." No, I'm not. I say. He speaks childishly and with an odd accent. But he's understandable. I have a disease. Another Terran healer told me so. Who? Her name was Anna Pekrakov. What disease? I don't remember. Something in the head. I get spells. What spells? You fall, flop on floor. No. Yes. Sometimes. Sometimes it takes me differently. I look directly into his eyes. Strange eyes, smaller than mine. And that improbable blue, Pekrakov told me I could die during a spell without help. He does not react to the lie, or maybe he does, and I don't know how to read it. I have never informed on a Terran before. Instead, he says something grossly obscene, even for Owlet Prison. Why you unreal? What you do? I move my gaze from his. I murdered my sister. If he asks for details, I will cry. My head aches too hard. He says, "I'm sorry." Is he sorry that he asked, or that I killed Anno? Pekrakov was not like this. She had some manners. I say, the other Terran healer said I should be watched carefully by someone who knows what to do if I get a spell. Do you know what to do, Peck Walters? Yes. Will you watch me? Yes. He is, in fact, watching me closely now. I touch my head. There is a cloth tied around it where I bashed myself. The headache is worse. My hand comes away sticky with blood. I say, in return for what? What you give Pekfakar for protection? He is smarter than I thought. Nothing I can also share with you. She would punish me hard. Then I watch you. You give me information about world. I nod. This is what Terrans usually request, and where information is given, it can also be extracted. I will explain your presence to Pekfakar. I say 
before the pain in my head swamps me without warning and everything in the dining hall blurs and sears together. Peck Fakar doesn't like it, but I have just given her a gun, smuggled in by my cousin. I leave notes for the prison administration in my cell, under my bed, while the prisoners are in the courtyard, which we are every day, no matter what the weather. The notes are replaced by whatever I ask for. Pekfakar had demanded a weapon. Neither of us expected a Terran gun. She is the only person in the prison to have such a thing. It is to me a stark reminder that no one would care if all we unreal killed each other off completely. There is no one else to shoot. We never see anyone not already in perpetual death. Without Peck Walters, I might have another spell and die, I say to the scowling Peck Fakar. He knows a special Terran method of flexing the brain to bring me out of a spell. So he can teach this special method to me. So far, no world person has been able to learn it. Their brains are different from ours. She glares at me. But no one, even those lost to reality, can deny that alien brains are weird. And my injuries are certainly real. Bloody headcloth, left eye closed from swelling, skin scraped raw, the length of my left cheek, bruised arm. She strokes the Terran gun, a boringly straight-lined cylinder of dull metal. All right, you may keep the Terran near you, if he agrees. Why should he? I smile at her. Slowly, Peck Fakar never shows a response to flattery. To do so would be to show weakness, but she understands, or thinks she does. I have threatened the Terran with her power, and the whole prison now knows that her power extends among the aliens as well as her own people. She goes on glaring, but she is not displeased. In her hand, the gun gleams, and so begin my conversations with the Terran. Talking with Carol Peck Walters is embarrassing and frustrating. He sits beside me in the eating hall or the courtyard and publicly scratches his head. When he is cheerful, he makes shrill, horrible whistling noises between his teeth. He mentions topics that belong only among kin: the state of his skin, which has odd brown lumps on it, and his lungs, clogged with fluid, apparently. He does not know enough to begin conversations with ritual comments on flowers. It is like talking to a child, but a child who suddenly begins discussing bicycle engineering or university law. You think individual means very little. Group means everything, he says. We are sitting in the courtyard against a stone wall, a little apart from the other prisoners. Some watch us furtively, some openly. I am angry. I am often angry with Peck Walters. This is not going as I'd planned. How can you say that? The individual is very important on world. We care for each other, so that no individual is left out of our common reality except by his own acts. Exactly, Peck Walters says. He has just learned this word from me. You care for others, so no one left alone. Alone is bad. Act alone is bad. Only together is real. Of course, I say. Could he be stupid after all? Reality is always shared. 
Is a star really there if only one eye can perceive its light? He smiles and says something in his own language, which makes no sense to me. He repeats it in real words. When tree falls in forest, is sound if no person hears? But do you mean to say that on your star, people believe they... What? I can't find the words. He says, people believe they always real, alone or together. Real even when other people say they dead. Real even when they do something very bad. Even when they murder. But they're not real. How could they be? They violated shared reality. If I don't acknowledge you, the reality of your soul, if I send you to your ancestors without your consent, that is proof that I don't understand reality and so am not seeing it. Only the unreal could do that. Baby not see shared reality. Is baby unreal? Of course. Until the age when children attain reason, they are unreal. Then, when I kill baby is all right because I not kill real person? Of course it's not all right. When one kills a baby, one kills its chance to become real before it could even join its ancestors and also all the chances of the babies to which it might become ancestor. No one would kill a baby on world, not even these dead souls in Alet. Are you saying that on Terra, people would kill babies? He looks at something I cannot see. Yes. My chance has arrived, although not in a form I relish. Still, I have a job to do. I say, I have heard that Terrans will kill people for science even babies, to find out the kinds of things that Anna Peck Rakoff knew about my brain. Is that true? Yes and no. How can it be yes and no? Are children ever used for science experiments? Yes. What kind of experiments? You should ask, what kind children? Dying children. Children not born yet. Children born wrong with no brain or broken brain. I struggle with all this. Dying children, he must mean not children who are really dead, but those in the transition to join their ancestors. Well, that would not be so bad, provided the bodies were then allowed to decay properly and release the souls. Children without brains or with broken brains? Not bad, either. Such poor, unreal things would be destroyed anyway. But children not born yet, in or out of the mother's womb. I push this away to discuss another time. I am on a different path. And you never use living, real children for science? He gives me a look I cannot read. So much of Terran expression is still strange. Yes, we use, in some experiments, Experiments who not hurt children. Like what? I say. We are staring directly at each other now. Suddenly I wonder if this old Terran suspects that I am an informer seeking information, and that is why he accepted my skimpy story about having spells. That would not necessarily be bad. There are ways to bargain with the unreal once everyone admits that bargaining is what is taking place but I'm not sure whether Peck Walters knows that. He says, 
Experiments who study how brain work, such as how memory work, including shared memory. Memory, memory doesn't work; it just is. No, memory work by memory building proteins. He uses a Terran word, then adds tiny little pieces of food, which makes no sense. What does food have to do with memory? You don't eat memories or obtain them from food. But I'm further down the path, and I use his words to go further still. Does memory in world people work with the same、uh, proteins as Terran memory? Yes and no. Some same or almost same. Some different. He is watching me very closely. How do you know that memory works the same or different in world people? Have Terrans done brain experiments on world? Yes. With world children? Yes. I watch a group of hahuhubs across the courtyard. The smelly little aliens are clustered together in some kind of ritual or game. And have you personally participated in these science experiments on children, Peck Walters? He doesn't answer me. Instead, he smiles. And if I didn't know better, I'd swear the smile was sad. He says, "Peckbingeren, why you kill your sister?" The unexpectedness of it! Now, so close to almost learning something useful, outreaches me. Not even Peckfakar has asked me that. I stare at him angrily. He says, "I know. I not should ask." Wrong for ask, but I tell you much. An answer is important. But the question is obscene. You should not ask. World people are not so cruel to each other. Even people damned in Alit prison, he says. And even though I don't know one of the words he uses, I see that yes, he recognizes that I am an informer, and that I have been seeking information. All right, so much the better. But I need time to set my questions on a different path. To gain time, I repeat my previous point: world people are not so cruel. Then you, the air suddenly sizzles, smelling of burning. People shout. I look up. Akapekfakar stands in the middle of the courtyard with the Terran gun, firing it at the Hahuhubs. One by one, they drop as the beam of light hits them, and makes a sizzling hole. The aliens pass into the second stage of their perpetual death. I stand and tug on Peck Walter's arm. Come on, we must clear the area immediately, or the guards will release poison gas. Why? So they can get the bodies into bondage chemicals, of course. Does this alien think the prison officials would let the unreal get even a little bit decayed? I thought that after our several conversations, Peck Walters understood more than that. He rises slowly, haltingly to his feet. Peck Fakar, laughing, strolls toward the door, the gun still in her hand. Peck Walters says, "World people not cruel." Behind us, the bodies of the Huhuhubs lie sprawled across each other, smoking. The next time we are herded from our cells into the dining hall and then the courtyard, the hahuhub corpses are of course gone. Peck Walters has developed a cough. He walks more slowly, and once, 
On the way to our usual spot against the far wall, he puts a hand on my arm to steady himself. Are you sick, Peck? Exactly, he says. But you are a healer. Make the cough disappear. He smiles and sinks gratefully against the wall. Healer, heal own self. What? Nothing. So you are informer, Peck Bingaren, and you hope I tell you something about science experiments on children on world. I take a deep breath. Peck Fakar passes us, carrying her gun. Two of her own people now stay close beside her at all times, in case another prisoner tries to take the gun away from her. I cannot believe anyone would try, but maybe I'm wrong. There's no telling what the unreal will do. Peck Walters watches her pass, and his smile is gone. Yesterday, Peck Fakar shot another person. This time, not even an alien. There is a note under my bed requesting more guns. I say, "You say I am an informer. I do not say it." Exactly, Peck Walters says. He has another coughing spell, then closes his eyes wearily. I have not antibiotics. Another Terran word. Carefully, I repeat it: antibiotics, proteins for heal. Again, that word for very small bits of food. I make use of it. Tell me about the proteins in the science experiments. I tell you everything about experiments, but only if you answer questions first. He will ask about my sister. For no reason other than rudeness and cruelty, I feel my face turn to stone. He says, "Tell me why steel baby not so bad for make person unreal always." I blink. Isn't this obvious? To steal a baby doesn't damage the baby's reality. It just grows up somewhere else with some other people. But all real people of world share the same reality. And anyway, after the transition, the child will rejoin its blood ancestors. Baby stealing is wrong, of course, but it isn't a really serious crime. And make false coins, the same. False, true coins are still shared. He coughs again. This time, much harder. I wait. Finally, he says, "So when I steal your bicycle, I not violate shared reality too much." Because bicycle still somewhere with people of world, of course. But when I steal bicycle, I violate shared reality a little. Yes. After a minute, I add, because the bicycle is, after all, mine. You made my reality shift a little, without sharing the decision with me. I peer at him. How can all this not be obvious to such an intelligent man? He says, "You are too trusting for be informer, Peck Bingaren." I feel my throat swell with indignation. I am a very good informer. Haven't I just bound this Terran to me with a private shared reality in order to create an exchange of information? I am about to demand his share of the bargain when he says abruptly. So why you kill your sister? Two of Pekvakar's people swagger past. They carry the new guns. Across the courtyard, a faller turns slowly to look at them, and even I can read fear on that alien face. 
I say as evenly as I can manage. I fell prey to an illusion. I thought that Anno was copulating with my lover. She was younger, more intelligent, prettier. I am not very pretty, as you can see. I didn't share the reality with her or him, and my illusion grew. Finally, it exploded in my head, and I did it. I am breathing hard, and Pekvakar's people look blurry. You remember clear Anno's murder? I turned to him in astonishment. How could I forget it? You cannot. You cannot because memory building proteins. Memory is strong in your brain. Memory building proteins are strong in your brain. Scientific research on world children for discover what is structure of proteins, where is proteins, how proteins work. But we discover different thing instead. What different thing? I say. But Peck Walters only shakes his head and begins coughing again. I wonder if the coughing spell is an excuse to violate our bargain. He is, after all, unreal. Peck Fakar's people have gone inside the prison. The faller slumps against the far wall. They have not shot him. For this moment, at least, he is not entering the second stage of his perpetual death. But beside me, Peck Walters coughs blood. He is dying. I am sure of it. Although, of course, no world healer comes to him. He is dead anyway. Also, his fellow Terrans keep away, looking fearful, which makes me wonder if his disease is catching. This leaves only me. I walk him to his cell and then wonder why I can't just stay when the door closes. No one will check, or if they do, will care. And this may be my last chance to gain the needed information before either Peck Walters is coffined or Peck Fakar orders me away from him. Because he is too weak to watch over my supposed blood sickness, his body has become very hot. During the long night, he tosses on his bunk, muttering in his own language, and sometimes those strange alien eyes roll in their sockets. But other times he is clearer, and he looks at me as if he recognizes who I am. Those times I question him, but the lucid times and unlucid ones blur together. His mind is no longer his own. Peck Walters, where are the memory experiments being conducted? In what place? Memory, memories. More in his own language. It has the cadences of poetry. Peck Walters, in what place are the memory experiments being done? At Rafket Sarlo, he says, which makes no sense. Rathcote Sarlo is the government center where no one lives. It is not large. People flow in every day, running the sections and out to their villages again at night. There is no square measure of Rathcote Sarlo that is not constantly shared physical reality. He coughs, more bloody spume, and his eyes roll in his head. I make him sip some water. Peck Walters, in what place are the memory experiments being done? At Rafket Sarlo, in the cloud, at Owlet Prison, it goes on and on like that, and in the early morning, Peck Walters dies. There is one moment of greater clarity somewhere near the end. He looks at me out of his old, ravaged face, gone gaunt with his transition. 
The disturbing look is back in his eyes, sad and kind. Not a look for the unreal to wear. It is too much sharing. He says so low, I must bend over him to hear. Sick brain talks to itself. You not kill your sister. Hush, don't try to talk. Find Brifjus Malden Peck Brifjus in Rathcote Haddon. Find. He relapses again into fever. A few moments after he dies, the armored guards enter the cell, wheeling the coffin full of bondage chemicals. With them is the priest. I want to say, wait, he's a good man. He doesn't deserve perpetual death. But of course, I do not. I am astonished at myself for even thinking it. A guard edges me into the corridor, and the door closes. That same day, I am sent away from Owlet Prison. Tell me again everything, Peckpermitten says. Peckpermitten is just the same, stocky, yellowing, slightly stooped. His cluttered office is just the same: food dishes, papers, over-elaborated sculptures. I stare hungrily at the ugly things. I hadn't realized how much I'd longed in prison for the natural sight of curves. I keep my eyes on the sculptures, partly to hold back my question until the proper time to ask it. Peck Walters said he would tell me everything about the experiments that are, yes, going on with world children in the name of science. But all he had time to tell me was that the experiments involve memory-building proteins. Which are tiny pieces of food from which the brain constructs memory. He also said the experiments were going on in Rathcote Sarlow and Owlet Prison, and that is all, Peck Bengaren. That is all. Peck Bermidden nods curtly. He is trying to appear dangerous to scare out of me any piece of information I might have forgotten, but Frablet Peck Bermidden can't appear dangerous to me. I have seen the real thing. Peck Bermidden has not changed. But I have. I ask my question. I have brought to you all the information I could obtain before the Terran died. Is it sufficient to release me and Anno? He runs a hand through his neck fur. I'm sorry, I can't answer that, Peck. I will need to consult my superiors, but I promise to send you word as soon as I can. Thank you, I say, and lower my eyes. You are too trusting for B. Informer Peck Bengaren. Why didn't I tell Frablet Peck Bermidden the rest of it about Malden Peck Brifjus and Rathcote Haddon, and not really killing my sister? Because it is most likely nonsense—the ravings of a fevered brain. Because this Malden Peck Brifjus might be an innocent world man who does not deserve trouble brought to him by an unreal alien. Because Peck Walters' words were personal, addressed to me alone on his deathbed. Because I do not want to discuss Anno with Peck Bermidden's superiors one more useless, painful time. Because, despite myself, I trust Carol Peck Walters. You may go, Peck Bermidden says, and I ride my bicycle along the dusty road home. I make a bargain with Anno's corpse, still lying in curled finger grace on the bed across from mine. Her beautiful brown hair floats in the chemicals of the coffin. 
I used to covet that hair desperately when we were very young. Once I even cut it all off while she slept. But other times I would weave it for her, or braid it with flowers. She was so pretty. At one point, when she was still a child, she wore eight bid rings, one on each finger. Two of the bids were in negotiation between the boys' fathers and ours. Although older, I have never had a single bid. Did I murder her? My bargain with her corpse is this: if the reality and atonement section releases me and Anno because of my work in Alit Prison, I will seek no further. Anno will be free to join our ancestors. I will be fully real. It will no longer matter whether or not I killed my sister, because both of us will again be sharing in the same reality, as if I had not. But if reality and atonement holds me unreal still longer, after all I have given them, I will try to find this Malden Peckbriftus. I say nothing of this aloud. The guards at Owlet Prison knew immediately when Peck Walters died inside a closed and windowless room. They could be watching me here now. World has no devices to do this, but how did Peck Walters know so much about a world man working with a Terran science experiment? Somewhere there are world people and Terrans in partnership. Terrans, as everyone knows, have all sorts of listening devices we do not. I kiss Anno's coffin. I don't say it aloud, but I hope desperately that reality and atonement releases us. I want to return to shared reality, to the daily warmth and sweetness of belonging, now and forever, to the living and dead of world. I do not want to be an informer any more, not for anyone, even myself. The message comes three days later. The afternoon is warm, and I sit outside on my stone bench. Watching my neighbor's milk beasts eye her sturdily fenced flower beds, she has new flowers that I don't recognize, with blooms that are entrancing but somehow foreign. Could they be Terran? It doesn't seem likely. During my time in Alit Prison, more people seem to have made up their minds that the Terrans are unreal. I have heard more mutterings, more anger against those who buy from alien traders. Frablick Peckbermidden himself brings the letter from Reality and Atonement, laboring up the road on his ancient bicycle. He has removed his uniform so as not to embarrass me in front of my neighbors. I watch him ride up, his neck fur damp with unaccustomed exertion, his gray eyes abashed, and I know already what the sealed message must say. Peckbermidden is too kind for his job. That is why he is only a low-level messenger boy. All the time, not just today. These are things I never saw before. You are too trusting for B informer Peck Bingaren. Thank you, Peck Bermidden. I say. Would you like a glass of water or Pell? No, thank you, Peck. He says. He does not meet my eyes. He waves to my other neighbor, fetching water from the village well, and fumbles meaninglessly with the handle of his bicycle. I can't stay. Then ride safely, I say, and go back in my house. I stand beside Anno and break the seal on the government letter. After I read it, I gaze at her a long time. So beautiful, so sweet-natured, so loved. 
Then I start to clean. I scrub every inch of my house for hours and hours, climbing on a ladder to wash the ceiling, sloshing thick soap suds in the cracks, scrubbing every surface of every object, and carrying the more intricately shaped outside into the sun to dry. Despite my most intense scrutiny, I find nothing that I can imagine being a listening device, nothing that looks alien, nothing unreal. But I no longer know what is real. Only Bata is up. The other moons have not risen. The sky is clear and starry. The air cool. I wheel my bicycle inside and try to remember everything I need. Whatever kind of glass Anno's coffin is made of, it is very tough. I have to swing my garden shovel three times, each time with all my strength, before I can break it. On the third blow, the glass cracks, then falls leisurely apart into large pieces that bounce slightly when they hit the floor. Chemicals cascade off the bed, a waterfall of clear liquid that smells only slightly acrid. In my high boots, I wade close to the bed and throw containers of water over Anno to wash off chemical residue. The containers are waiting in a neat row by the wall. Everything from my largest wash basin to the kitchen bowls. Anno smiles sweetly. I reach onto the soggy bed and lift her clear. In the kitchen, I lay her body, limp, soft-limbed, on the floor and strip off her chemical-soaked clothing. I dry her, move her to the waiting blanket, take a last look, and wrap her tightly. The bundle of her and the shovel. Balances across the handles of my bicycle. I pull off my boots and open the door. The night smells of my neighbor's foreign flowers. Anno seems weightless. I feel as if I can ride for hours, and I do. I bury her, weighted with stones, in marshy ground well off a deserted road. The wet dirt will speed the decay, and it is easy to cover the grave with reeds and toglyph branches. When I finished, I bury my clothes and dress in clean ones in my pack. Another few hours of riding, and I can find an inn to sleep in, or a field if need be. The morning dawns pearly, with three moons in the sky. Everywhere I ride are flowers, first wild and then cultivated. Although exhausted, I sing softly to the curving blooms, to the sky, to the pale moonlit road. Anno is real. And free, go sweetly, sweet sister, to our waiting ancestors. Two days later, I reach Rafket Haddon. It is an old city sloping down the side of a mountain to the sea. The homes of the rich either stand on the shore or perch on the mountain, looking in both cases like rounded, great white birds. In between lie a jumble of houses, market squares. Government buildings, inns, pill shops, slums, and parks—the latter with magnificent old trees and shabby old shrines. The manufacturing slopes and warehouses lie to the north, with the docks. I have experience in finding people. I start with rituals and processions. The young clerk behind the counter, a pre-initiate of the priesthood, is young and eager to help. Yes. I am Ajma Peck Goranalit, attached to the household of Menanlin. I have been sent to inquire about the ritual activity of a citizen, Malden Peck Briftjes. Can you help me?
Of course, she beams. An inquiry about ritual activity is never written. Discretion is necessary when a great house is considering honoring a citizen by allowing him to honor their ancestors. A person so chosen gains great prestige and considerable material wealth. I picked the name Mananlan after an hour's judicious listening in a crowded pell shop. The family is old, numerous, and discreet. Let me see," she says, browsing among her public records. "Brifjus, Brifjus. It's a common name, of course. Which citizen peck? Malden. Oh yes, here. He paid for two musical tributes to his ancestors last year. Made a donation to the Rathcote Haddon Priest House. Oh, and he was chosen to honor the ancestors of the House of Shalalay. She sounds awestruck. I nod. We know about that, of course. But is there anything else? No, I don't think. Wait. He paid for a charity tribute for the ancestors of his clue merchant, Lam Peck Flano, a poor man. Quite a lavish tribute too. Music and three priests. Kind, I said. Very three priests. Her young eyes shine. Isn't it wonderful how many truly kind people share reality? Yes, I say, it is. I find the clue merchant by the simple method of asking for him in several market squares. Sales of all fuels are, of course, slow in the summer. The young relatives left in charge of the clue stalls are happy to chat with strangers. Lampec Flano lives in a run-down neighborhood just behind the great houses by the sea. The neighborhood is home to servants and merchants who provide for the rich. Four more glasses of pell in three more pell shops, and I know that Malden Peckbriftus is currently a guest in the home of a rich widow. I know the widow's address. I know that Peckbriftus is a healer. A healer. Sick brain talks to itself. You not kill your sister. I am dizzy from four glasses of pell. Enough. I find an inn, the kind where no one asks questions. And sleep without the shared reality of dreams. It takes me a day, disguised as a street cleaner, to decide which of the men coming and going from the rich widow's house is Peck Brifjus. Then I spend three days following him in various guises. He goes a lot of places and talks to a lot of people, but none of them seem unusual for a rich healer with a personal pleasure in collecting antique water carafes. On the fourth day. I look for a good opportunity to approach him, but this turns out to be unnecessary. Peck, a man says to me as I loiter, dressed as a vendor of sweet flatbreads outside the baths on Alindel Street. I have stolen the sweets before dawn from the open kitchen of a bake shop. I know at once that the man approaching me is a bodyguard and that he is very good. It's in the way he walks, looks at me, places his hand on my arm. He is also very handsome. But that thought barely registers. Handsome men are never for such as me; they are for Anno. Were for Anno. Come with me, please," the bodyguard says, and I don't argue. He leads me to the back of the baths through a private entrance to a small room apparently used for private grooming of some sort. The only furniture is two small stone tables. He checks me expertly but gently for weapons. Looking even in my mouth, satisfied, he indicates where I am to stand and opens a second door. Malden Peck Brifjus enters, 
wrapped in a bathing robe of rich imported cloth. He is younger than Carol Walters, a vigorous man in a vigorous prime. His eyes are striking, a deep purple, with long gold lines radiating from their centers. He says immediately, Why have you been following me for three days? Someone told me to, I say. I have nothing to lose by an honest shared reality, although I still don't fully believe I have anything to gain. Who? You may say anything in front of my guard. Carol Peck Walters. The purple eyes deepen even more. Peck Walters is dead. Yes, I say, perpetually. I was with him when he entered the second stage of death. And where was that? He's testing me. In Owlet Prison, his last words instructed me to find you, to ask you something. What do you wish to ask me? Not what I thought I would ask, I say, and realize that I have made the decision to tell him everything. Until I saw him up close, I wasn't completely sure what I would do. I can no longer share reality with world, not even if I went to Frablet Pepermidden with exactly the knowledge he wants about the scientific experiments on children. That would not atone for releasing Anno before the section agreed, and Pepermidden is only a messenger anyway. No, less than a messenger, a tool, like a garden shovel or a bicycle. He does not share the reality of his users. He only thinks he does as I had thought I did. I say, I want to know if I killed my sister. Peck Walters said I did not. He said, sick brain talks to itself, and that I had not killed Anno, and to ask you, did I kill my sister? Peck Brift just sits down on one of the stone tables. I don't know, he says, and I see his neck fur quiver. Perhaps you did, perhaps you did not. How can I discover which? You cannot. Ever? Ever. And then, I am sorry. Dizziness takes me, the low blood pressure. The next thing I know, I lie on the floor of the small room with Peck Brifjus's fingers on my elbow pulse. I struggle to sit up. No, wait, he says. Wait a moment. Have you eaten today? Yes. Well, wait a moment anyway. I need to think. He does, the purple eyes turning inward, his fingers absently pressing on the inside of my elbow. Finally, he says, You are an informer. That's why you were released from Owlet Prison after Peck Walters died. You inform for the government. I don't answer. It no longer matters. But you have left informing because of what Peck Walters told you. Because he told you that the schizophrenia experiments might have... No, it can't be. He too has used a word I don't know. It sounds Terran. Again, I struggle to sit up, to leave. There is no hope for me here. This healer can tell me nothing. He pushes me back down on the floor and says swiftly, When did your sister die? His eyes have changed once again. The long golden flecks are brighter, radiating from the center like glowing spokes. Please, Peck, this is immensely important to both of us. Two years ago and 152 days. Where? In what city? Village. Our village. Gothkit Elo. Yes, he says. Yes. 
Tell me everything you remember of her death. Everything. This time I push him aside and sit up. Blood rushes from my head, but anger overcomes the dizziness. I will tell you nothing. Who do you people think you are, ancestors, to tell me I killed Anno? Then tell me I didn't. Then say you don't know. To destroy the hope of atonement I had as an informer. Then to tell me there is no other hope. No, there might be hope. No, there's not. How can you live with yourself? How can you twist people's brains away from shared reality and offer nothing to replace it? I am screaming. The bodyguard glances at the door. I don't care. I go on screaming. You are doing experiments on children, wrecking their reality as you have wrecked mine. You are a murderer. But I don't get to scream all that. Maybe I don't get to scream any of it. For a needle slides into my elbow at the inner pulse where Malden Brifjus has been holding it, and the room slides away as easily as Anno into her grave. A bed, soft and silky, beneath me. Rich wall hangings. The room is very warm. A scented breeze whispers across my bare stomach. Bare. I sit up and discover I am dressed in the gauzy skirt, skimpy bandeau, and flirting veil of a prostitute. At my first movement, Peck Brifjus crosses from the fireplace to my bed. Peck, this room does not allow sound to escape. Do not resume screaming. Do you understand? I nod. His bodyguard stands across the room. I pull the flirting veil from my face. I am sorry about that. Peckbrith just says it was necessary to dress you in a way that accounts for a bodyguard carrying a drugged woman into a private home without raising questions. A private home, I guess that this is the rich widow's house by the sea, a room that does not allow sound to escape. A needle, unlike ours, sharp and sure. Brain experiments, schizophrenia. I say, you work with the Terrans. No, he says, I do not. But Peck Walters, it doesn't matter. What are you going to do with me? He says, I am going to offer you a trade. What sort of trade? Information in return for your freedom. And he says he does not work with Terrans. I say, what use is freedom to me? Although of course I don't expect him to understand that. I can never be free. Not that kind of freedom, he says. I won't just let you go from this room. I will let you rejoin your ancestors and Anno. I gape at him. Yes, Peck. I will kill you and bury you myself, where your body can decay. You would violate shared reality like that for me? His purple eyes deepen again. For a moment, something in those eyes looks almost like Peck Walters' blue ones. Please understand. I think there is a strong chance you did not kill Anno. Your village was one where subjects were used for experimentation. I think that is the true shared reality here. I say nothing. A little of his assurance disappears, or so I believe. Will you agree to the trade? Perhaps I say. Will he actually do what he promises? I can't be sure. But there is no other way for me. I cannot hide from the government all the years until I die. I am too young, and when they find me, they will send me back to Owlet, and when I die there, they will put me in a coffin of preservative chemicals. 
I would never see Anno again. The healer watches me closely. Again, I see the Peck Walters look in his eyes, sadness and pity. Perhaps I will agree to the trade, I say, and wait for him to speak again about the night Anno died. But instead, he says, I want to show you something. He nods at the bodyguard who leaves the room, returning a few moments later. By the hand, he leads a child, a little girl, clean and well dressed. One look makes my neck fur bristle. The girl's eyes are flat and unseeing. She mutters to herself. I offer a quick appeal for protection to my ancestors. The girl is unreal, without the capacity to perceive shared reality, even though she is well over the age of reason. She is not human. She should have been destroyed. This is Ori, Peckbrith just says. The girl suddenly laughs a wild, demented laugh and peers at something only she can see. Why is it here? I listen to the harshness in my own voice. Ori was born real. She was made this way by the scientific brain experiments of the government. Of the government? That is a lie. Is it? Do you still, Peck, have such trust in your government? No, but. To make me continue to earn Anno's freedom, even after I had met their terms? To lie to Peck Bermidden. Those offenses against shared reality are one thing. The destruction of a real person's physical body, as I had done with Anno's, had I, is another, far, far worse. To destroy a mind, the instrument of perceiving shared reality. Peck Brith just lies. He says, Peck, tell me about the night Anno died. Tell me about this thing. All right. He sits down in a chair beside my luxurious bed. The thing wanders around the room, muttering. It seems unable to stay still. She was born Ori Malfizit in a small village in the far north. What village? I need desperately to see if he falters on details. He does not. Gothkit Ramlow, of real parents, simple people, an old and established family. At six years old, Ori was playing in the forest with some other children when she disappeared. The other children said they heard something thrashing toward the marshes. The family decided she had been carried off by a wild kilfreet. There are still some left, you know, that far north, and held a procession in honor of Ori's joining their ancestors. But that's not what happened to Ori. She was stolen by two men. Unreal prisoners promised atonement and restoration to full reality, just as you were. Ori was carried off to Rathgat Sarlo with eight other children from all over world. There, they were given to the Terrans, who were told that they were orphans who could be used for experiment. The experiments were ones that would not hurt or damage the children in any way. I look at Ori, now tearing a table scarf into shreds and muttering. Her empty eyes turn to mine, and I have to look away. This part is difficult, Peckbrith just says. Listen hard, Peck. The Terrans truly did not hurt the children. They put electrodes on their heads. You don't know what that means. They found ways to see which parts of their brains worked the same as Terran brains and which did not. 
They used a number of tests and machines and drugs. None of it hurt the children who lived at the Terran scientific compound and were cared for by world child watchers. At first, the children missed their parents, but they were young, and after a while, they were happy. I glance again at Ori. The unreal, not sharing in common reality, are isolated and therefore dangerous. A person with no world in common with others will violate those others as easily as cutting flowers. Under such conditions, pleasure is possible, but not happiness. Peck Briff just runs his hand through his neck fur. The Terrans worked with world healers, of course, teaching them. It was the usual trade, only this time we received the information, and they the physical reality, children and watchers. There was no other way world could permit Terrans to handle our children. Our healers were there every moment. He looks at me. I say, yes, just because something must be said. Do you know, Peck, what it is like to realize you have lived your whole life according to beliefs that are not true? No, I say so loudly that Ori looks up with her mad, unreal gaze. She smiles. I don't know why I spoke so loud. What Peck Brith just said has nothing to do with me, nothing at all. Well, Peck Walters knew. He realized that the experiments he participated in, harmless to the subjects and in aid of biological understanding of species differences, were being used for something else. The roots of schizophrenia, misfiring brain circuits. He is off on a long explanation that means nothing to me, too many Terran words, too much strangeness. Pet Briftus is no longer talking to me. He is talking to himself in some sort of pain I don't understand. Suddenly, the purple eyes snap back to mine. What all that means, Peck, is that a few of the healers, our own healers from world, found out how to manipulate the Terran science. They took it and used it to put into minds memories that did not happen. Not possible. It is possible. The brain is made very excited with Terran devices, while the false memory is recited over and over. Then different parts of the brain are made to, to recirculate memories and emotions over and over, like water recirculated through mill races. The water gets all scrambled together. No, think of it this way. Different parts of the brain send signals to each other. The signals are forced to loop together, and every loop makes the unreal memories stronger. It is apparently in common use on Terra, although tightly controlled. Sick brain talks to itself. But there are no objections possible, Peck. It is real. It happened. It happened to Ori. The world scientists made her brain remember things that had not happened. Small things at first. That worked. When they tried larger memories, something went wrong. It left her like this. They were still learning. That was five years ago. They got better, much better. Good enough to experiment on adult subjects who could then be returned to shared reality. One can't plant memories like flowers or uproot them like weeds. These people could and did. But why? Because the world healers who did this, and they were only a few, saw a different reality. I don't... They saw the Terrans able to do everything. 
make better machines than we can, from windmills to bicycles, fly to the stars, cure disease, control nature. Many world people are afraid of Terrans Peck and of Fallers and Huhuhubs because their reality is superior to ours. There is only one common reality, I said. The Terrans just know more about it than we do. Perhaps, but Terran knowledge makes people uneasy and afraid, and jealous. Jealous. Anno saying to me in the kitchen with Bata and Cap right at the window. I will too go out to see him. You can't stop me. You're just jealous, a jealous, ugly, shriveled thing that not even your lover wants. So you don't wish me to have any. And the red flood swamping my brain, the kitchen knife, the blood. Peck, the healer says. Peck. I'm, all right. The jealous healers—they hurt their own people, world people, for revenge on the Terrans. That makes no sense. The healers acted with great sorrow. They knew what they were doing to people, but they needed to perfect the technique of inducing controlled schizophrenia. They needed to do it to make people angry at Terrans, angry enough to forget the attractive trade goods and rise up against the aliens to cause war. The healers are mistaken, Peck. We have not had a war on world in a thousand years. Our people cannot understand how hard the Terrans would strike back. But you must understand, the outlaw scientists thought they were doing the right thing. They thought they were creating anger in order to save world. And another thing, with the help of the government, they were careful not to make any world man or woman permanently unreal. The adults manipulated into murder were all offered atonement as informers. The children are all cared for. The mistakes, like Ori, will be allowed to decay some day to return to her ancestors. I will see to that myself. Ori tears the last of the scarf into pieces, smiling horribly. Her flat eyes empty. What unreal memories fill her head? I say bitterly. Doing the right thing, letting me believe I killed my sister. When you rejoin your ancestors, you will find it isn't so, and the means of rejoining them was made available to you, the completion of your informing atonement. But now that atonement will never be completed. I stole Anno and buried her without section consent. Malden Briftjes, of course, does not know this. Through my pain and anger, I blurt. And what of you, Peckbriftjes? You work with these criminal healers, aiding them and emptying children like Ori of reality. I don't work with them. I thought you were smarter, Peck. I work against them, and so did Carol Walters, which is why he died in Owlet Prison. Against them? Many of us do. Carol Walters among them. He was an informer, and my friend. Neither of us says anything. Peckbriff just stares into the fire. I stare at Ori, who has begun to grimace horribly. She squats on an intricately woven curved rug, which looks very old. A reek suddenly fills the room. Ori does not share with the rest of us the reality of piss closets. She throws back her head and laughs—a horrible sound like splintering metal. Take her away, Peckbriff just says wearily to the guard, who looks unhappy. 
I'll clean up here. To me, he adds, we can't allow any servants in here with you. The guard leads away the grimacing child. Peckbrif just kneels and scrubs at the rug with chimney rags dipped in water from my carafe. I remember that he collects antique water carafes. What a long way that must seem from scrubbing shit, from Ori, from Carol Walters coughing out his lungs in Owlet Prison among aliens. Peckbrif just, did I kill my sister? He looks up. There is shit on his hands. There is no way to be absolutely sure. It is possible you were one of the experiment subjects from your village. You would have been drugged in your house to awake with your sister murdered and your mind altered. I say, more quietly than I have said anything else in this room, you will really kill me, let me decay, and enable me to rejoin my ancestors? Peckbrif just stands and wipes the shit from his hands. I will. But what will you do if I refuse, if instead I ask to return home? If you do that, the government will arrest you and once more promise you atonement, if you inform on those of us working to oppose them. Not if I go first to whatever part of the government is truly working to end the experiments. Surely you aren't saying the entire government is doing this thing. Of course not. But do you know for certain which sections and which officials in those sections wish for war with the Terrans and which do not? We can't be sure. How can you? Frablet Peckbermidden is innocent, I think, but the thought is useless. Peckbermidden is innocent, but powerless. It tears my soul to think that the two might be the same thing. Peckbrift just rubs at the damp carpet with the toe of his boot. He puts the rags in a lidded jar and washes his hands at the washstand. A faint stench still hangs in the air. He comes to stand beside my bed. Is that what you want, Uli Pekbengaren, that I let you leave this house, not knowing what you will do, whom you will inform on? That I endanger everything we have done in order to convince you of its truth? Or you can kill me and let me rejoin my ancestors, which is what you think I will choose, isn't it? That choice would let you keep faith with the reality you have decided is true and still keep yourself secret from the criminals. Killing me would be easiest for you, but only if I consent to my murder. Otherwise, you will violate even the reality you have decided to perceive. He stares down at me, a muscular man with beautiful purple eyes, a healer who would kill, a patriot defying his government to prevent a violent war, a sinner who does all he can to minimize his sin and keep it from denying him the chance to rejoin his own ancestors a believer in shared reality who is trying to bend the reality without breaking the belief. I keep quiet. The silence stretches on. Finally, it is Peck Brifjus that breaks it. I wish Carol Walters had never sent you to me. But he did, and I choose to return to my village. Will you let me go, or keep me prisoner here, or murder me without my consent? Damn you! he says, and I recognize the word as one Carol Walters used about the unreal souls in Owlet Prison. Exactly, I say. What will you do, Peck? Which of your supposed multiple realities will you choose now? 
It is a hot night, and I cannot sleep. I lie in my tent on the wide, empty plain and listen to the night noises. Rude laughter from the pell tent, where a group of miners drinks far too late at night for men who must bore into hard rock at dawn. Snoring from the tent to my right, muffled love making from a tent further down the row. I'm not sure whose. The woman giggles, high and sweet. I have been a miner for half a year now. After I left the northern village of Gothkit Ramlo, Ori's village, I just kept heading north. Here on the equator, where world harvests its tin and diamonds and pellberries and salt, life is both simpler and less organized. Papers are not necessary. Many of the miners are young, evading their government service for one reason or another, reasons that must seem valid to them. Here, government sections rule weakly, compared to the rule of the mining and farming companies. There are no messengers on Terran bicycles. There is no Terran science. There are no Terrans. There are shrines, of course, and rituals, and processions, and tributes to one's ancestors. But these things actually receive less attention than in the cities because they are more taken for granted. Do you pay attention to air? The woman giggles again, and this time I recognize the sound. Awe Peck Kraftmal, the young runaway from another island. She is a pretty thing and a hard worker. Sometimes she reminds me of Anno. I asked a great many questions in Gothkit Ramlo. Ori Malfizit, Peck Brifjus said her name was, an old and established family. But I asked and asked, and no such family had ever lived in Gothkit Ramlo. Wherever Ori came from, and however she had been made into that unreal and empty vessel shitting on a rich carpet, she had not started her poor little life in Gothkit Ramlo. Did Malden Brif just know I would discover that when he released me from the rich widow's house overlooking the sea? He must have, or maybe, despite knowing I was an informer, he didn't understand that I would actually go to Gothkit Ramlo and check. You can't understand everything. Sometimes, in the darkest part of the night, I wish I had taken Peck Brifjus's offer to return me to my ancestors. I work on the rock piles of the mine during the day, among miners who lift sledges and shatter solid stone. They talk and curse and revile the Terrans, although few miners have as much as seen one. After work, the miners sit in camp and drink pell. Lifting huge mugs with dirty hands and laugh at obscene jokes, they all share the same reality, and it binds them together in simple and happy strength. I have strength too. I have the strength to swing my sledge with the other women, many of whom have the same rough, plain looks as I, and who are happy to accept me as one of them. I had the strength to shatter Anno's coffin and to bury her, even when I thought the price to me was perpetual death. I had the strength to follow Carol Walters' words about the brain experiments and seek Malden Brifjus. I had the strength to twist Peck Brifjus's divided mind to make him let me go. But do I have the strength to go where all of that leads me? Do I have the strength to look at Frablet Bermidden's reality and Carol Walters' reality and Anno's and Malden Brifjus's and Ori's and try to find the places that match and the places that don't? Do I have the strength to live on, never knowing if I killed my sister or if I did not? Do I have the strength to doubt everything and live with doubt, 
and sort through the millions of separate realities on world, searching for the true pieces of each, assuming that I can even recognize them? Should anyone have to live like that? In uncertainty, in doubt, in loneliness, alone in one's mind, in an isolated and unshared reality. I would like to return to the days when Anna was alive, or even to the days when I was an informer, to the days when I shared in world's reality and knew it to be solid beneath me, like the ground itself, to the days when I knew what to think, and so did not have to, to the days before I became, unwillingly, as terrifyingly real as I am now. There you go, a fine story. Fine story and a fine narration. I'll put a link on to Nancy's site and to Amy's site. Do pop over and say hello to both of them. That is Oral Delights, show number 97. What do you think? Fantastic. Blowing that trumpet again. Blowing it hard. So do look out for next week's show. Before that, though, this runs the generosity of everyone. But it'd be nice if donations came. £2.50 a month gets you the private sanatorium shows where you can hear all my private misgoings on. Please consider it and help support this fine show. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.